Hello and welcome to New Franklin Assembly. We're so glad that you chose to join us today. Our church is located at 2355 New Franklin Road, Chambersburg, Pennsylvania, 17202. Today, Pastor James will be starting a new series entitled Miracle Births. The title of today's message is Samuel. Can you believe that the Christmas season is upon us? It kind of sneaks up on you, doesn't it? You're focused on Thanksgiving and getting all that done, and afterwards you're focused on turkey leftovers, and all of a sudden the Christmas lights are all over your neighborhood, and you feel like you're a little bit behind, and you got to get those lights up, right? And <laughs> well, the Christmas season is upon. How many of you agree with the song that they, you, you really do feel like this is the, one, the most wonderful time of the year? Yeah, some of the, two, two of them are equal. Well, actually, now I, I, I guess it's changed now that I'm empty nest. But it was Christmas and the day that the kids went back to school, right? It was there equally as important. And so, well, today I want to start a new sermon series for the month of December. It's our Christmas uh, theme. Uh, I'm calling it Miraculous Births. Miraculous Births. The Christmas season, as we all know, is the story of one miraculous birth, the birth of Jesus through the Virgin Mary. And though there is so much content within the Christmas story that we could take December, the entire month of December and even more than that if we wanted to, to look at the Christmas story. But I want to take a little bit different approach this year. Throughout the Bible, there are several miraculous births recorded for us as we read the Scriptures, Old Testament and New. And so for the next few weeks, leading right up to Christmas, when we'll, when we'll talk about the miraculous birth of Jesus, uh, but right up until that point, I want to talk to you about several miraculous births that are mentioned in the Scriptures. I believe as we look at each one of these miraculous births mentioned in the Scriptures, that there will be something that God will want to bless us with this Christmas season. And so I would encourage you, for the month of December especially, the entire month is going to be along these lines. And so if you know someone that might be blessed by these messages, uh, then invite them to church. Not just candlelight or Christmas Eve service, not just for the children's Christmas plays, you know, and, and which is on the, what day that week? It's in your book, 19th? 19th? Um, and something like that. I forget, I'm not sure if I, don't, if I have that date right, but not just for the children's program, not just for candlelight service, but every Sunday we're going to be talking about uh, Christmas and miraculous births within the Scriptures. So go ahead and invite someone that you might feel will be blessed by these messages. But let me start by reading you a story of one man's Christmas. Now, Christmas Day is usually a joyous occasion, but has anyone ever had a Christmas day that you kind of wish were, you forgot. You know, not everyone has the most joy, uh, maybe a family argument. You know, you get together with long-lost cousins and aunts and uncles, and there's, there's things, you know, you tend to forget about those. Well, it's nothing compared to this guy. Let me read to you one man's Christmas day. On December 1st, 1863, Henry Wadesworth Longfellow sat down to a quiet dinner. Now, how many have heard that name? Is anyone... Okay, so it's not really a surprise. You know where I'm going with this. Uh, but Henry Wadesworth Longfellow sat down to a quiet dinner with his children in his home near Cambridge, Massachusetts. Henry had been widowed in a tragic accident two years prior when his wife's dress caught on fire. 
Henry, awoken from a nap, desperately tried to extinguish the flames, first with a rug and then with his own body, but he was too late. His wife suffered severe burns and died the next morning. Henry's facial burns were so severe that he was unable to attend his own wife's funeral. He would later grow a beard to hide the scars and feared being sent to an asylum because of his grief. Earlier that spring in 1863, his oldest son, Charlie, had enlisted as a private with the 1st Massachusetts Artillery, and he, had, uh, and he had advanced quickly to second lieutenant. So far, he had survived. But on this night in early December, a, a, a telegram came in. Charlie had been severely wounded four days earlier in a skirmish. A bullet had traveled across his back, narrowly missing his spine. He was being transferred to Washington, D.C. Immediately, Henry and his younger son boarded a train and arrived in Washington, D.C. on December 3rd to visit Charlie. Charlie arrived a few days later, <clears throat> and surgeons began working on him. Henry was alarmed to hear that his son might be paralyzed. The surgeons later thought he might be able to make a recovery, but it would be a long process, at least six months. This was the situation for Henry Longfellow on Christmas Day, 1863. A 57-year-old widower, stricken with grief, father of six children, the oldest of whom might be paralyzed for the rest of his life as his country fought a war against itself. As the Christmas bells rang, as he heard carolers sing peace on earth, he thought about how all the injustice and violence and suffering of the whole world around him seemed to mock those ideas. And he sat down and wrote this poem. I have three of those stanzas on the screen. These are the words he writes, I heard the bells on Christmas day, their old familiar carols play. And wild and sweet, the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then from each black accursed mouth, the cannon thundered in the south. And with the sound, the carols drowned of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. How bad does life have to get for you to pen words like that? In despair I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Perhaps you can relate to Henry Longfellow this Christmas season, or perhaps only in part, perhaps in greater degree, I don't know. Perhaps you know someone who's going through seasons of anguish, a season of anguish rather than a season of peace and goodwill towards men. Well, we could certainly look at our country and, and feel despair, right? We may not be fighting a civil war like in the days of Henry Longfellow, but the country has been more the country hasn't been this divided in a, in, a, in a very long time. We can look at our own personal circumstances and feel despair. Though we may not have suffered loss on the scale like that of Henry Longfellow, 
The loss we've experienced is certainly real, and the pain is certainly real. We can look at our life over the years and, and feel despair. We can, the feeling that we should be further along in life than we really, sh- than, than, than we, are, we should be. We should be further along in life than we, than we are, we feel. You see, further along in our relationships, further along in our careers and, and in our economic status. And so for many people, as they look upon their life this Christmas season, it's hard for them to see how the festivities of the Christmas season can help the troubles and the fears that they have. And for others, the joys of Christmas is only a pleasant pause, a temporary distraction from the despair they feel. They know full well that soon the festivities will come to an end, families will go their separate ways, and life will get back to the normal that they are so frustrated with. Isn't this just the feel-good message you were waiting for today? (laughs) Well, here's the good news. God's Word is not oblivious to the troubles that we experience in life. Let me say that again because it's worth an amen. God is not oblivious to the troubles that we experience in our life. The Bible is refreshingly honest about the hardships that we go through. And it is clear about how in the midst of these hardships, when all hope seems lost, that God, that's when he typically carries out his plans and his purposes for our life. Today we'll look closely at a miraculous birth, the miraculous birth of the prophet Samuel. And and in the book of 1 Samuel, uh, chapter 1 begins around the time of the judges. This is before Israel experienced kings, King Saul and King David. Uh, Samuel was actually the prophet that anointed the first king of Israel, King Saul, and then anointed King David. But the story that we see here in 1 Samuel chapter 1 would have overlapped the time of Samson when Israel was living under Philistine oppression. They lived in constant threat of the Philistines, and there is no one person leading Israel. Eli is the high priest, and his sons uh, are defiling the temple with their sinful ways. But all that is just a backdrop, kind of the way the Civil War was a backdrop to what was going on in Henry Longfellow's life. In 1 Samuel chapter 1, it zooms in on the troubles of one family, the family of Elkanah and his wives. In particular, it zooms in on a, a woman named Hannah. Could it be that God, who orchestrates kings and nations and world events, is involved in the details of one troubled woman living out in the countryside. Could it be that God, who created the universe, is interested in the despair and the grief and the pain that you might be feeling or someone you love might be feeling this Christmas season? Well, the definite and quick answer to this is absolutely yes, he does care. And so I believe God desires to give you a miraculous birth this Christmas. 
Might not be in the form of a baby boy or baby girl, but I believe he wants to birth his peace and his will into your life this Christmas season, whether it's your troubles or your hardships, your uncertainties, or whatever it is you're experiencing. I believe he wants to birth his perfect plans into your life and into our church this Christmas season. So let's begin reading 1 Samuel chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. It's a little long to put on the screen, so if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. Otherwise, you can listen to me read it. We'll read uh, the, the story in different sections. And we'll start with the first eight verses. It says this, There was a certain man from Ramathium, a Zephite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jehoram, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zoph, the Ephraimite. He had two wives. One was called Hannah, and the other Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah had none. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife Penina and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he would give a double portion because he loved her. And the Lord had closed her womb. And because the Lord had closed her womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. How many know people like this? You say, yeah. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her until she wept and would not eat. Elkanah, her husband, would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? And so let's stop there for now anyway. The, the story begins by focusing in on the family of this man, Elkanah. Now, we don't know much about where he's from, but we can tell from his genealogy that he comes from a respected family. The story indicates that he's a pretty devout man. Every year he takes a trip to Shiloh, which was not an easy trip to make, so that he can sacrifice and worship the Lord at Shiloh once a year. He takes his entire family. Not only that, but he seems to be a pretty successful man, able to travel and offer these sacrifices and feasts for his family. But more than that, this man is able to afford two wives. Now, God's perfect plan, as outlined for us in Genesis is for marriage to be between one man and one woman. Now, throughout the history of the Old Testament, we do see that multiple wives was an accepted practice among societies, but nowhere in the scriptures does God condone that. Matter of fact, everywhere you read about a man in the scriptures having more than one wife, it doesn't really work out too good for him. You see, so you would think they would learn, but they didn't. It is speculated by commentators that Hannah was his first wife, his first love. So why would he take another one? Well, Hannah was barren, and she was not giving this man children. And for a rich man not to have an heir to pass his land to 
Well, that was not just a disgrace. It would mean that the land that was passed from his father and his grandfather and his grandfather after, before that, all of a sudden then would be lost. His name would be lost from that land. So he needed children to pass the land to, to pass the inheritance to. And so society's bright idea, how many know society today has a lot of bright ideas that don't work out too well? We see that going on a lot these days. Well, society's bright idea back then to solve this problem was for the man to take a second wife to have some children so that he would have someone to pass his inheritance to. We see this happening with Abraham and Sarah, right? God promised Abraham a son, Abraham and Sarah a son in their old age. And when the promise didn't seem to come, it was... Sarah says, well, maybe you should take Hagar and sleep with her and have children through him. Maybe the promised son will come through her. Well, we know that didn't really work out too good for them. And for us, there's still unrest in the Middle East because of that. Those two sons, the son of Hagar and the son of Sarah, are still at odds and at war today in the Middle East. See, society's pressures and customs, they often derail or try to derail the perfect plans of God for your life. And that's what's going on here. But God is faithful, isn't he? God's plans don't change because we make mistakes. Now, there needs to be repentance. There needs to be a humbling if we want to continue to experience his plans. But his promises and his plans don't change because we make mistakes. Penina, Elkanah's second wife, as the story goes. Well, she is able to bear children while Hannah remains barren. And just as Hagar despises Sarah, Penina begins to despise Hannah because after all, Hannah was Elkanah's first love and he favored her. So even despite the fact that she's able to give this man children, she's still jealous of Hannah because Elkanah loves her more. And this tension between the two, the two wives, it continues to grow stronger along with the despair and the anguish that Hannah is feeling for not being able to give this man any children. And it would all come to a head at their yearly holiday dinner table. How, many's had, how many of you have had those kinds of conversations at a Thanksgiving dinner or a Christmas dinner? That's why today's society suggests, listen, maybe for Thanksgiving dinner, maybe for Christmas dinner, you should avoid some of these conversations, you know, like the ones about politics and religion and money. Avoid those because you want to have a peaceful holiday dinner. Well, maybe there's some truth to that. But this was what was happening around Elkanah's holiday table. As Elkanah distributed the portions of meat, giving portions to Penina and each of her children, he would deliberately give Hannah a double portion because he loved her. This made Penina upset and jealous, as you can imagine. This made Penina lash out at Hannah. She wasn't being very kind. 1 Samuel verse, the, chapter 1, verses 6 and 8 said this, And because the Lord had closed her womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. And this went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her until she wept and would not eat. But notice the first part of that verse. 
that says it was the Lord who had closed her womb. Think about that. It was the Lord who did this to her. So point number one is this. God's peace and God's goodwill for your life, they are miraculously birthed when we realize that our troubles belong to the Lord. Let me say that again. God's peace and God's will are miraculously birthed when we realize that our troubles, they belong to God. It was God's sovereign hand that kept Hannah barren. It was his doing. God's sovereignty. Isn't it hard to understand sometimes? Hard to even explain and think about. Why would God do this or allow this to happen if he knew it was going to cause so much pain? Well, rarely can we see God's wisdom in something like this when we are going through it, right? When we're going through that season of despair, when we're going through the anguish, when we're going through the valleys and the hardships and the uncertainties, it's hard to see what God is doing. Why? Because the emotions run high and emotions muddy the waters. They make things unclear. Sometimes we can see the wisdom in what God is doing after the fact. Look back and retro, look back at it in, in hindsight and say, okay, I, I get what you're doing, God. I, I get what you did, and I'm okay with it. Or maybe it takes a little time for you to be okay with it. But nonetheless, you look back and you say, oh, oh, okay, I see what you did there. But you know what? Then there are times we will never know this side of heaven why God did what he did, why he allowed what he did. In Hannah's case, we can look back and we can see what God was doing. Hannah gives birth to Samuel, and Samuel becomes a major prophet. If he isn't born the way he is born, then Hannah never offers him up to the temple, never allowing him to be raised as a Nazarite. He never becomes a prophet. He never anoints King Saul and then the greatest king Israel ever had, King David. The timing of Samuel's birth and ministry is impeccably perfect. If he isn't born the way he is, then history doesn't play out the way it does. But again, we rarely see what God is doing in our lives when we're in the midst of it. We're in the middle of it. When we know that our troubles belong to God, however, well, then God's will can miraculously begin taking shape in our lives. Whatever you're going through, whatever it is that's causing anguish or despair, know that God has control over it. It all belongs to him. And peace is birthed in knowing that, knowing that whatever our troubles it just, it belongs to him. It's not ours. Let's read on. Let's go to, uh, again, 1 Samuel chapter 1, beginning with verse 9. We'll read to verse 18. The story continues, and it says this. Once, when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on a chair by the doorpost of the Lord's temple. 
In bitterness of soul, Hannah wept much and prayed to the Lord. And she made a vow saying, O Lord Almighty, if you will only look upon your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life and no razor will ever be used on his head. And she kept on praying to the Lord. Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk, which speaks to the spiritual condition of the the nation at that point, to be honest. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, how long will you keep on getting drunk? Get rid of your wine. Not so, my Lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Eli answered, go in peace and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. She said, may your servant find favor in your eyes. Then she went her way and ate something and her face was no longer downcast. So point number two is this. Again, God's peace and God's will are miraculously birthed when we realize, one, that our troubles belong to God, and number two, when we realize that our prayers matter to God. Our prayers matter to God. 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 10, it says, In bitterness of soul, Hannah wept much and prayed to the Lord. Verse 16, I have been praying here out of my great anguish and great fear. Have you, ever, have you ever prayed when feeling like this? In bitterness of soul, great anguish and great grief? You see, the thing about these feelings, the, the, the bitterness of soul, the anguish and the grief, the, the thing is about these feelings that when you feel them, the temptation is, is to pull away from God. The temptation is to blame God or to blame others. The temptation is for you to lash out at people like Penina did with Hannah. But really, when you think about it, it's all the more reason to draw near to God in prayer. It's probably more important to draw near to Him in those moments than any other time. See, during times of great anguish and during times of great grief, prayer is anything but ritualistic. Prayer is anything but dead religion and, and, and meaningless. That's what it means the most. This could not have been the first time that Hannah prayed for a child. But here we see her reaching a new level of desperation. And it's in this desperation that changes something inside of Hannah. Listen to what she says in verse 11. Says, and she makes a vow saying, O Lord Almighty, if you will only look upon your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. You see, the desire for a son becomes only a small part of that prayer. The, great, the, the greatest anguish, think about this, the greatest anguish is not experienced when the promised son doesn't come. 
The, the greatest anguish that we feel, it's not experienced when the healing doesn't come or the, the, mir- the, the financial blessing doesn't come or the miracle we're waiting for doesn't come. The greatest anguish that we feel doesn't come, isn't felt when those things don't come. The greatest anguish, the greatest despair that we will ever feel is when we feel that God has forgotten about us. Hannah prayed, if you will only look upon your servant's misery and remember me. See, the greatest anguish, the greatest, the deepest despair you will ever experience is when you associate the struggles of this life with the love that God the Father has for you. In other words, God can only love you as much as you obey him, as much as you serve him, that your level of love and your level of of service to him, your level of worship determines the amount of God's love for you. That's how the world thinks. That's how sometimes we act when we're in these seasons of despair. Listen, this world is broken. And sometimes the brokenness of this world hits home in a way that is deeply painful the way it was with Henry Longfellow. But if somehow we associate the brokenness of this world, if we somehow associate the brokenness of this world that we may be experiencing at the time with the level of love that God has for us, well, then we are choosing to remain just as broken as the world. Why? Because the Bible teaches us that what? That God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil, and he came to to break the power of this broken world over us. That's what he accomplished on the cross. Listen, there is a God who loves us more than we could ever imagine. And God who set the galaxies in place, God who reigns over history and over all the nations. A God who is sovereign over every single meticulous event in, this, in the world. God cares about you. And that God loves you enough to humble himself and become a man to die on the cross for you. You see, the perfect peace of God and the perfect will of God for your life miraculously begins to take shape in your life, not when you become desperate for the miracle, but rather when you become desperate for more of him, the one who loves us. That's what was going on here with Hannah. She had become more desperate for God than the miracle she was waiting for. Desperate prayers change us in that we begin to want more of what God wants and less of what we want. So she vows to devote the son to the Lord. She will allow him to be raised in the temple under Eli the priest, which means he won't be home for the holidays, which means she'll be alone at the dinner table with Panina and her children. She dedicates him to be raised as a Nazarite, which means he would be set apart his entire life for service to the Lord. Yes, there is definitely something life-changing about prayer. 
Look at verse 18. It says, Eli answered, Go in peace and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked for. She said, May your servant find favor in your eyes. And then she went her way and ate something and her face was no longer downcast. Hannah left the temple not knowing if anything would actually change. Nothing had changed and she wasn't sure it would. Yet she had a peace from God that everything was going to be all right. Her prayer had become more about her relationship with God than her relationship with her husband. Her prayer was more about her relationship with God than her relationship with her rival, Penina. Lord, make things better between us. You see, Her relationship with God became more important than even her eventual relationship with her son. Well, that's powerful. The Puritans, who helped establish this nation way back when, they had a saying, pray until you pray. Huh? What does that mean? Pray until you pray. What were they saying? It was their way of encouraging people to pray until you pray from the heart. How many have been there? You set a time to pray and you're praying, but your mind is somewhere else and you're just praying and you're thinking about this and you think about that and you're praying, but you're also wondering what's going to happen tomorrow and this and that. And you're not really praying, but you're praying. Pray until you pray. And this act of prayer, when you pray from the heart, is a life-changing experience. Peace can be experienced. Let me, let me change the way I say that. Peace can be experienced. Even when the chaotic circumstances and the chaotic situations around you go unchanged. It comes when we pour out our hearts to the Lord in prayer. It comes when we begin to seek His will within those circumstances and those situations more than our own. It comes when we realize that our prayers matter to God. And finally, number three, God's peace and God's will are miraculously birthed in our lives when we realize, again, one, when our troubles belong to God, when we realize that our prayers matter to God, and third, when we realize that our salvation comes from God. The miracle we're waiting for. The healing we're believing for. The answer to the problem in our communities and in our country belongs to God. It comes from God, rather. So let's read the rest of the story. 1 Samuel, beginning with verse 19. It says this, Early the next morning they arose and worshipped before the Lord, and then, when, I'm sorry, and then went back to their home at Ramah. Elkanah lay with Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time, Hannah conceived and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, because I asked the Lord for him. When the man Elkanah went up with uh, all his family to offer the annual sacrifice to the Lord and to fulfill his vow, Hannah did not go. She said to her husband, after the boy is weaned, I will take him and present him before the Lord, and he will live there always. Do what seems best to you, Elkanah, her husband told her. Stay here until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord make good his word. So the woman stayed at home and nursed her son until she had weaned him. After he was weaned, she took the boy with her 
she took the boy with her, young as he was, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. When they had slaughtered the bull, they brought the boy to Eli, and she said to him, As surely as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who stood here beside you, praying to the Lord. I prayed for this child, and the Lord has granted me what I asked of him. So now I give him to the Lord for his whole life. He will be given over to the Lord, and he worshiped the Lord there. Well, if the story ends simply with Hannah's inner peace, without her ever getting that child, well, the story is incomplete, right? The salvation that God brings is not merely one of inner peace in the midst of chaos. Well, that's certainly certainly a promise that we have. It's not the ultimate. Uh, it's not the ultimate will of God. No, we serve a God who acts in time and in space and brings a new reality on behalf of those who cry out to him. Just as God remembered Noah, Genesis chapter 8. Just as God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Exodus chapter 2, you can read that word. It says how God remembered Noah, God remembered Abraham. Here we read that God remembered Hannah. What is he saying? It's not that God's memory is faulty. No, but this is language that indicates that God was about to move on their behalf. And so God opens Hannah's womb and she gets, gives birth to a son. It's a miraculous birth. She's obviously overjoyed, and she names the boy Samuel. The time comes at, again for the annual trip to Shiloh, and Elkanah's packing up the family and ready to go, and, and Hannah says, no, 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 I'm not going. The next time I go is when I'm going to go and give this boy to the temple. And so Elkanah agrees. And this would have been exactly a year later that Hannah said, no, I'm not going. I need a little bit more time. So she decides to wean the child off of being nursed and then makes her own trip up to Shiloh to offer Samuel to be raised in the temple. Now, or in other words, she did not forget her vows to the Lord. She was going to honor the vow that she made. Now think about this. No one knew she made this vow. Eli didn't even know what she was praying for. It never says that, that she was praying for a child. When Eli says, hey, may the Lord grant whatever you're asking for. Her husband would have only known about this vow only if she chose to, to tell him about it. So she could have easily gone back on her vow, but instead we see her joyfully offering him to the Lord. It wasn't even hesitating, hesitantly. Joyfully she offers the son. She knows that Samuel does not belong to her. He doesn't exist to vindicate her own pride against Penina, no. He doesn't exist to boost her own self-esteem, no. No, he belongs to God. And the next time she returns to Shiloh, it was to devote Samuel to the Lord forever. We don't get any sense of hesitation from Hannah at all. As a matter of fact, the exact opposite is true. She plans to... She plans to care for Samuel, not until he's a teenager. That would be a great time to send him off. That's tough raising those teenagers, right? I'm going to raise him until he's a teenager and then send him off. No, not even until he's eight or nine years old, until he was weaned off 
from being nursed, which was in back then about two or three years old. So at two or three years old, he's tr- she decides to trust this man with her child. Now remember, Eli the priest, if you look at other scriptures, at this point in time, he has two other grown men that serve the temple. Phineas, uh, uh, what were the names? Hophni and Phineas. Now if you look at those names and look at other scriptures, these were two boys that were defiling the temple. They were taking women into the temple. This is the man I want. And, and their father, Eli, was hush about it. He just, over, he just ignored it. He didn't do anything about it. This was the man she chose to trust with her boy. Why was she able to do this joyfully? Without hesitation because she had learned through her desperate prayers she had learned that her troubles belonged to God she had learned that her prayers matter to God she had learned to trust him in all things and though at this point no one could have foreseen Samuel growing up to be a mighty leader again he was the last of the judges and the first of the prophets And he helped transition a governing system from judges to kings, anointing the first king, anointing even then in the midst of Saul's craziness, helping transition that then to King David. Samuel helped that. The point of the story is not that if we pray hard enough, God will give us what we want. No, that's not the point of the story. Hannah's response clearly shows us that in the end, Samuel was not the point of her joy. Her joy was in the Lord himself who made himself known to her. In chapter 2, Hannah prays again. This time, however, it is not out of a deep anguish. It's not out of deep despair, but the prayer comes from a heart filled with great joy. In 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, it says this, just to read the first two verses of that prayer. It says, My heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord, my, uh, in the Lord my horn is lifted high. My mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one beside you. There is no rock like our God. Hannah saw a glimpse of how God will act to save his people in every circumstance and every situation, but ultimately how he would act to bring a savior to the world. Hannah understood that her experience was only a shadow pointing forward to a greater salvation that was to come, one that she would not, could not have imagined In our great anguish, in our deep despair, while we were yet sinners, the Bible says, in the midst of our rival, the the devil provoking us, God provided a son. Not just any son, he provided his own son. Jesus, the son of God, was given to us. Hannah devoted Samuel to the priesthood. And as hard as that may have been for her, God did something far more radical and far more unthinkable. He devoted his son to our humanity. More than 2,000 years ago, 
more than 2,000 years ago, born miraculously of a virgin, the Lord of hosts took our finite, limited, vulnerable, hurting, weeping humanity upon himself. Though he was perfect without sin, he was not without suffering. He lived out the full extent of the troubles and the temptations and the sorrows that we experience as a part of this broken world. He took it on freely. And the griefs and the sorrows that you carry, that we carry, he also carried. And though perfect in every way, he was rejected by men. The Bible says stricken, stricken and smitten and afflicted. And, and in the end, he was nailed to the cross. Hannah devoted Samuel to service, but God devoted his son to sacrifice. We are those who deserve God's judgment. But there on the cross, Jesus bore our death and our judgment, and he died to pay the price for our sins. He did it willingly because, God's, because God loves us. The proof of God's love for you is not in your circumstances. It's not even in the blessings that he pours out upon you. The proof of God's love for you is the salvation that he has made available to you through his son, Jesus Christ. God's answer to your problem is not when he, it's not in just him simply waving his hand and making all things bad go away. No, it's in him giving himself to us. And so in closing, in the midst of all the chaos that we see happening around us in our country these days, in the midst of all the troubles that we may be experiencing in our lives today, this is the hope that the Christmas season brings. It is the hope of salvation through his son, Jesus. When Longfellow heard the Christmas bells in 1863, 1863 he reflected on the circumstances of this broken world. The broken world he saw happening around us, a civil war that was breaking out. And he was reflecting on his own troubles. And yet in the midst of all of that, he recognized a deeper reality. The reality that God has not forgotten his people. God has acted to save. And so there is hope, he realizes, that is... a that is deeper than a, a brokenness in this world. And so he penned the last verse that reads like this. It says, Then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail, with peace on earth, goodwill to men. Today all our troubles mock our hope. Our broken world, as broken as they are, they mock us and the hope that we have in Christ. But the day will soon come when God will end all our troubles. The wrong will fail. The right will prevail. And there will be peace on earth. Goodwill to men. Do you know this peace today? Do you need this kind of peace today? Do you know someone who needs it this Christmas season? Hello, everyone. This is Pastor James. I hope you enjoyed today's message. My prayer is that you would always experience all that God has for you. New Franklin Assembly exists to advance God's kingdom, to encourage God's people, and to serve our community. 
If you're in the Chambersburg area, we would love to have you join us for a live service. For more information, please visit our website at www.newfranklinag.org. Thank you. God bless.